This is a fairly terrifying time in history. And when people are scared, they want the familiar. Now, of course, what people are calling the familiar is a romanticized notion of old systems that disenfranchised women and people of color and immigrants, but weren't even that great for a lot of white men. Good morning, America. It is about 7 a.m. Eastern, or Eastern. I'm not on the East Coast. It is about 7 a.m. here on the West Coast. I am totally awake and everything is fine. And just popping in to tell you as my kids eat breakfast that we are rushing out an episode for you today with someone we're really excited to talk to, Farai Shidea, who is a bona fide election expert who has covered every American presidential election since 1996, which means she is made of much stronger stuff than I. I just wanted to note that Adrian and I caught up with Farai yesterday, Thursday, November 5th. We still do not technically have an outcome to this presidential election, but it was kind of trending Biden word yesterday, and uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia are getting... Very, very interesting today, thanks to the work of Stacey Abrams and a whole lot of other black women who did a phenomenal and strategic job getting out the vote in those battleground areas. Anyway, I'm not going to rattle on too much because you want to hear Farai talk, and believe me, you do. She is so smart and so in touch with what is going on right now, and it was a real gift to get to talk to her. So, as you are certainly not getting work done today. I know I'm not. If you need a little election analysis with a wide lens, please tune in to our conversation with Farai Chidea. I am Laura Good. Adrian is not here because it was easier to edit an intro without two voices. And we will be resuming our normal Wednesday release schedule in just a few weeks, hopefully as democracy restores itself. Take care out there. We appreciate your listening. Having covered voters on the road the last election and spending a lot of time with Trump voters, I found that they were very passionate for different reasons sometimes about voting for Donald Trump and actually very much on message for whatever their constituency was. So when I interviewed white evangelicals, it was all about the court and abortion. Mm -hmm. When I interviewed people in Eastern Ohio, it was about the Rust Belt, the death of industry, no future for my grandchildren. When I interviewed other people, it was all about misogyny, you know? And the reality was that one of the strengths that I don't hear enough people acknowledging of President Trump's political strategy is that he allows people to do whatever they want with their message. Hillary Clinton was very tight with her message. She wanted everyone to stay on message. The reality is people process information different ways. So you actually had in one case, again, in Eastern Ohio, you know, some volunteers just rewrote the playbook for Clinton, trying to persuade people the best way they knew how. 
And I also knew that, you know, no one can predict everything, but I simply thought that the appeal of white supremacy and the appeal of authoritarianism were being underestimated. The reality is we're in a global authoritarian wave. There are leaders across the world leveraging authoritarianism and getting applauded for it. So this is part of our time in history. No amount of polls convinced me otherwise. And, you know, as we can tell, the polls were badly off. I'm caught between impulses of wanting to engage you as an election expert to reassure me by telling me how it's all going to turn out and my desire to keep what's going to be important yesterday, today, and tomorrow in the frame. I think we're all struggling with that. Right? It's really hard. And like, it's not fair of me to expect you just by virtue of being an election expert to know how this is all going to turn out. None of us can totally know. I think Biden's going to win. And I think there's going to be political violence. So I've already planted my flag, whether I'm right or wrong. All right. That's what I believe. Can you expand on that? Well, I've been able to get on calls with different people who have access to, you know, proprietary surveys and information about the campaigns. And at the time we're taping this, there is no winner. But, you know, by the time people listen, there may well be. Mm -hmm. And it looks as if, you know, within the next day or so, Biden will have a path to victory. I can't be sure, but this is coming from what I consider reliable sources who are people who have ears to the ground mm -hmm. and people who also understand the legal systems and the vote counting systems, basically. But I do think that without a landslide win, even if there's a chance that Vice President Biden's win could be the largest electoral win ever, you know, I may be getting this wrong. I can't remember if it's the largest electoral win or the largest popular vote win, but there's a chance it could break one of those two records. But even if it does, people are significantly worked up about their team to the point where we have long since passed through the portal of truth into the era of culture war, where people are going to believe whatever they want to believe. Not everyone, but many people are pretty divorced from facts at this point. And that's a dangerous thing to be right now. It's a really interesting thing for a piece I'm writing. I've been watching a lot of Fox News this week. And there is a really interesting sense one gets there that they've come to the same conclusion as you have. And they're actually, for once, getting a little scared of what they've unleashed. They're really careful about sort of walking a very fine line between, you know, kind of indulging some of these conspiracy theories, but then also very firmly putting them in their place. It's like they poured out all the gasoline, they lit the match, and now they're trying to hold it as far from the gas as they possibly can. But you can definitely tell that they know... I think they agree with your assessment, ultimately, that this is extremely combustible. Yeah, it's what I like to think of or don't like to think of, but call end stage culture war. It's when the culture war has the danger of becoming a shooting war and people beating each other up. And I think we are going to see some of that, particularly, I'm afraid for people who live in, you know, multiracial and politically heterogeneous exurbs. So mm -hmm. kind of the edges of the suburbs, the edges of the rural areas, places where it's not heterogeneous enough for everyone to be the exact same race and believe the exact same thing, but also one group dominates and other groups kind of have to be afraid if that dominant group doesn't play nice. I've had a lot of tough conversations with my white friends who are politically astute, 
who have underestimated the appeal of white nationalism. And I've interviewed white supremacist, white nationalists from the Klan to the Aryan nation, which no longer exists, to people in contemporary white nationalist movements. And there is a, an incredible sense of belonging that people can find in this. This is a fairly terrifying time in history where economic models are breaking. Many people don't see a path to gainful employment. And when people are scared, they want the familiar. Now, of course, what people are calling the familiar is a romanticized notion of old systems that disenfranchised women and people of color and immigrants, but weren't even that great for a lot of white men, you know, but people right. are willing to forget that in order to try to turn the clock back. Yeah. But as far as the Fox News things, it's clear that Rupert Murdoch has just had it right. with President Trump. And, you know, apparently the president may have called Rupert Murdoch, according to news reports, when Fox called Arizona for Biden and basically said, how dare you? And Rupert was like, I dare, <laughs> you know, and that's a profoundly different tone from the past. I was just thinking about the question of the economy and all this. I mean, that's one of the interesting things here, right? That, you know, in the middle of this complete economic meltdown, it seems like voters who prioritize the economy, I know these are exit polls and we should look at them with all due caution, but still it's noticeable that apparently voters who agreed to be interviewed after casting their ballots, if they voted for the president, it was largely on economic grounds. It's fascinating and it makes me always think about there's a point that Kathleen Bellew makes in that book about white power movements, Bring the War Home, where she talks about how actually their rise and fall is tagged not so much to sort of the business cycle or the how the economy is doing, but the best predictor is actually whether the United States has just been at war or not. And I sort of keep thinking about the fact that this country has been at war for 19 years continuously. I understand that these two explanations are not mutually exclusive, but I, I do kind of think about like, oh, wow, are we also sort of seeing what happens to a society when it almost casually is constantly at war and it's never really talked about. And, you know, if you look at interviews with Trump supporters, say many of them think he ended these wars. It's like, got some news for you. They're still going on. But I'm wondering, do you think that there's also something here about militarism? I, I just kind of thinking about the fact that like this summer, right? Like so many protests around Black Lives Matter were faced with this incredible surplus military stuff that all came from those exact wars. And you think like, oh, wow, like there is really something here. This is white supremacy plus the leftover from 19 years of constant warfare. Yeah, I do think everything fits together and sometimes in ways that we have yet to truly study. So I come from a family with a long military history, and one of my cousins fought in both Iraq and Afghanistan and definitely had a lot of trauma from that, but also was able to process it. Right. How many people endured the same amount of trauma, but weren't able to process it. And I think one reason he was able to process it is because my family has a lot of veterans, including two uncles who served in Vietnam. Mm. So he had people who he could talk to about what it's like to be in active combat. Mm -hmm. You know, these wars have also released a lot of psychic energy back into the world that families have to deal with, that veterans have to deal with. And they can totally deal with it if given the space, time and tools. But not everyone gets that luxury. Right. You know, especially if you live far from a VA and you're in a place that doesn't have other psychiatric care that you want to avail yourself of. But I think more than that, it's this idea, again, going back to the authoritarianism, it's this idea that you always have to be winning. 
It's not about collaboration, conversation, having allies. It's about dominance. It's about winning. That's the narrative. I think that that's kind of a much broader issue than the wars themselves. But I will say that the militarization of the border and the ability to send federal agents who are wearing, they're unmarked, wearing black jumpsuits, you know, that stuff is really creepy from the dictator playbook. And people should be very afraid of going down that path. It's not a good path, even for people who think they want it. I'm thinking as you're talking, one thing that I wanted to mention is that you come to us as a mutual of Sarah Smarsh, and I understand you guys met at Harvard's Shorenstein Center. And from what I understand, the work that you did at that center was both quantitative and qualitative analysis of race and gender across newsrooms. Yep. You are an expert in that field, and I am struck by the fact that we are noting a similar discrepancy in pre-election polling and actual election outcomes. Can you connect those dots for us? Oh, absolutely. Connect those dots. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I tweeted. I think the day of the election, when things were starting to come back, or maybe the day after, that the lack of white people from working class backgrounds and people of color in newsroom leadership was killing journalism. You know, it is killing journalism dead. You know, there are people who think that $200,000 a year is the bottom threshold for middle class. I mean, maybe not literally, but that's how they think like, oh, that's a middle class family. It's like, no, actually the middle class families are mom, dad, and two kids earning 67,000 or whatever it is a year. And it's definitely not over $70,000. There's a remarkable lack of understanding of the struggle that people have just to put together what's considered a basic, not even a fancy life. And there are a lot of people who are working income or low income and just completely forced to make horrific compromises, like Mm -hmm. in so many cases, people who are essential workers doing things like home health aid or even working in hospitals if they are working for a temp agency and not directly for the hospital, may not have sick leave. Right. And if they're just barely making rent and feeding their kids and they get COVID and they don't know whether they have it, but they just feel a little off, are they going to go in and earn money for their family or are they going to stay home? A country that forces people to make these choices is a very cruel country at times. And I don't think we've reckoned. Well, I mean, now we're reckoning. So to go back to that question of the economy, I think that a lot of the exit polling showing that Trump voters voted for the economy was really aspirational economic thinking, kind of lottery winner thinking like, oh, if I only stick with the billionaire, who's not even really a billionaire, then I'll be rich too and everything will be fine. The Democratic voters often ranked COVID as their top priority, ending the pandemic. And that's not just like, oh, I don't I don't want to catch a disease. It's also like, right. hmm, I'm a working woman or I was a working woman, but now I have to stay home with my three kids. And I thought that earning enough money meant that I could have childcare, but now there's just like not even childcare. So many childcare providers have gone out of business because they don't want to take the legal risks of taking care of kids during a pandemic. So all of the failures of America to support working women are showing up. You know, the fact that we don't have paid parental leave, unlike every other developed country and almost every country period. And we just, on the show that I host, Our Body Politic, about women of color and politics, we taped an episode today. And one of the stats was that pregnant women who get COVID 
are four times as likely to end up in the ICU as women who aren't pregnant. And I wonder if some of that is not just pregnancy as a thing in itself, but also pregnancy can be beneficial to the body in some ways and stresses it in others. And if you're trying, let's say, to hold on to that job while you know there's layoffs and you aren't feeling super great, I just wonder, I would love to know all the factors that went into that. I doubt that it's only pregnancy. I bet there's a lot of economic factors and juggling and and other things like that. You know, speaking as someone who has been pregnant and working twice, I can also imagine in the sort of empathetic scenario that you're drawing here that like that pregnant woman who maybe is seeing layoffs coming is also very aware that she's already being discriminated against. She already has a target on her back just for having a reproductive system in a way that would compound exactly the scenario you just described even more. Yep. And it's, it's really interesting also to think about the fact that the scenario you describe is sort of the one that we hear the least about, I feel like, in the media. It's so much about like, oh, people went to a party or look at these dummies sitting in a restaurant. You think... Almost always, I feel like when we moralize like that in the United States, there's a systemic problem we're trying to hide, right? Mm. Which is precisely, maybe it's not about people who make stupid decisions. It's that people make impossible decisions, that people are basically, as you're both saying, being like, I don't like either of these options, but this is the one that allows me to put food on the table and maybe saves my job. So I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that this pandemic definitely is a mix of people making stupid decisions and people making um, decisions that they feel they have no choice about. Survival decisions, yeah. Yeah. An example of the stupid decision is that I was doing early voting in Brooklyn, and these two guys almost got into a fight. And when I turned around, I saw that one of them wasn't wearing a mask and was wearing an I have antibodies t-shirt. Like, not joking. It's like, no, that's not how it works. First of all, antibodies don't last most of the time. Secondly, so many layers of wrong beyond that, you know, and yeah. And so there's definitely people who are trying to win the Darwin Award, but there's a lot more people who just, there was a a great article in the New York Times a few months ago by a teen who was saying, if they ever go back to in-person school, I'm not going because I live in a very tight space with an intergenerational immigrant family and I don't want to kill my grandmother. Yeah, People are making decisions like that too. Even young people Absolutely. are trying to make decisions about how much risk they bring into their household. And if you're someone who has at least one bathroom per person in your house, you're probably way ahead of most families. Right. You know, and that makes a difference when you have a pandemic. This is such a not serious point, but I have two little boys and the younger one is in the middle of potty training. And we just had our first line for the bathroom the other day. And I like a real line, not just one person waiting. And I was like, oh, God, this is only going to get worse, isn't it? (laughs) Well, unless as he transitions out of diaper, some others transition back into them. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's an option I hadn't considered. (laughs) Yeah. Then anyone could be the bathroom. Like, that's terrible. And I'm like, no, there's something to that. Good idea. I think it's more peeing out the window in the middle of the night to avoid the bathroom. Or that. Or that. Yes. Take, take the camping approach. That's a really good idea. Okay, back to serious election talk. It's all very serious. Right. We were talking about how people build allies in the context of Trump and, and the ways that people have underestimated the power of Trump and the white supremacist message. 
you are someone who had such an interesting career path that has relied so heavily on your earning the trust of strangers immediately. And I would love to hear how you think you got those skills. How did you learn to build allies quickly? Well, I mean, I think some of it is that I was raised by, you know, my parents divorced and primarily I was raised by my mom, but both of my parents had a background in journalism and had met in grad school of communications at Syracuse. Mm. So they were great communicators. And my whole family just loved doing like ad hoc political punditry around the dining room table. I remember as a very young kid listening to my two uncles who served in Vietnam debate it. Like one of them was an officer in Vietnam was not in combat, was definitely in danger, got a bronze star, but was stringing communications wire through the jungle. And then the other one was a grunt in a platoon and had a totally different experience. And so I think part of it was, I'm a very chatty person, but I learned that silence can be your best ally as a reporter. I will just buy people coffee and listen to them for a half hour And you can't always do that. But, you know, I always, even if I only have a couple minutes, like I'm interviewing people at a fair, back when that was a thing that you could do, ask about who they're with, you know, so a woman's there with her kids. Oh, you know, how old are they? What are they like? You know, you ask some questions, you signal that you are acknowledging the person as a full human being, even if that's not the point of the conversation. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of going zero to 60 just being like, what do you think about President Trump? It's like, how about a hello? Start at hello, ask a couple of very innocent, sometimes questions you think are innocent turn out not to be innocent, but try your best to ask a couple of innocent, innocuous questions. And it doesn't always work. I've had people remain hostile to me, no matter how hard I tried, but that's also part of my job. But I think listening and paying attention to the fact that you're talking to a human being You're not just there to get a quick answer and run Mm -hmm. is really the key. Turning it into more of a holistic than a transactional interaction. Is that the distinction you're making? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I think a lot about how I think that those ally building skills can become survival skills or can be synonymous with survival skills, especially for women. Is that something that you think about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean... You know, being on the road, just in terms of like gender roles on the field, yeah, I realized how hard I had to work to try to seem not like a sexual prospect and also not like one of the guys. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't always work. Sometimes you get sexually harassed, as I was in the last election and many other times on the road. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think that you're a bro and start talking about their sexual exploits with women. You're like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. I'm not here Mm -hmm. for that either. Mm -hmm. I just want to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. You spend so much time trying to navigate gender and sexual identity in spaces with people you don't know. And it can be quite challenging, Mm -hmm. especially for younger women. You know, as you get older, the reality is that Most men are less inappropriate with you. And frankly, I'm glad to be at that age, but it shouldn't have to be about age. It Mm -hmm. should never be okay. 
I've heard some older women, like more past menopause women say that the invisibility associated with being outside of the like most marketable sexual window can feel for some people like a kind of hindrance, but for other people like a kind of superpower, like they really enjoy the invisibility, but the invisibility's existence is emblematic of a problem too. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I have friends who definitely feel different ways about that. I have one friend who's really mourning, not getting all the adoring gazes Mm -hmm. and many other people who are like, I am so glad not to be catcalled every 10 seconds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's possible to feel both ways too. You know, like I think it's possible for one person to feel both of those things. Yeah. And the main thing is it should not be something that women have to navigate. Right. Have to develop survival skills. Or anyone. I have male friends who've also been sexually harassed, including in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a women thing. Mm -hmm. For sure not. Can I ask, in terms of these dynamics that you describe, I feel like, so after the 2016 election, there was always this question, what did the media miss? How did they miss it? And it seems like, you know, intrepid reporters were sent out everywhere to sort of get the story. And we're probably going to be in for another repeat of that after what happened on Tuesday. And these dynamics that you describe around reporting, to what extent do you think that kind of ends up shaping the narrative that we're told about the success of Donald Trump, for instance, right? I'm only asking because I remember after 2016, there was often an exhortation to sort of get out there, you know, meet meet different people. It's like, yeah, well, that's a lot easier for some people to do that for others, right? And so do you think that after this election, do you think that media have gotten wiser to this, that maybe you don't? Nope. And we haven't? Okay. No. I mean, you know... First of all, it's not it's not easy even for reporters to be out there. You can feel very alone. Right. And just I remember in the last election spending three days of interviewing, in this case, Trump voters for like six, seven hours a day. And I was just so tired. And it wasn't even about the people I was interviewing. It's like processing that much humanity back to back to back to back. And everyone is different and you have to hit an emotional harmonic with every person. And I really enjoyed it and it enlightened me, but it was also completely exhausting and not just in a physical way, in a kind of energetic way. Mm -hmm. And the same thing when I went to a mosque, totally different crowd politically, totally different crowd ethnically, but just the energy of saying, okay, I'm going to go into a mosque where I'm going to be in the women's section because it's not gender integrated. And I'm going to do the interviews afterwards while people are eating a meal and not everyone is fluent in English. And some people are American born and most are immigrants. And like just trying to figure out how to bring my respectful whole self into a situation where I'm wearing a head covering, I'm in a gender segregated space, which is not usually, you know, how I, I mean, I have socially gender segregated spaces, like a group of alumna from my college, but you have to be respectful of other people when you do this work. And then I think that for so many people who are not reporters or not trained, I mean, because reporters are not always respectful, let me just be clear, right. very often not. But for people who don't have some sense of training in how to engage with people with differences from them, I think that one of the mistakes is often assuming that you have to be your typical self. Like if I'm wearing a headscarf in a mosque, I'm not my typical self. I don't usually wear a headscarf and I'm not usually in a gender segregated space, but that's okay. 
I'm on someone mm -hmm. else's home turf. And when I'm interviewing Trump voters, a lot of times I use sir and ma'am in order and, and also with people in the mosque. Like when I don't know someone and I also don't know kind of what their cultural framework is, I just use sir and ma'am a lot. And I keep using it until people tell me not to. Just applying a little bit of extra respect and being present to people's sociocultural patterns which doesn't mean mimicking them or mirroring them, but it means coming in with kind of your most polite self, like mm -hmm. the way like if you were going to meet potential in-laws for the first time, you know, right. kind of bringing a bit of that self as opposed to like, hey, I'm here. What's mm -hmm. up? What's mm -hmm. for dinner? I feel like one of the ways I learned that lesson as a young journalist, in addition to just learning the skill of letting enough silence hang that you're actually listening is I am like you, a chatty person. That was something that I definitely had to like work that muscle in myself. But another thing that I learned was how and when, well, when is pretty much always, but like how to let a subject describe themselves in a way so that you are not superimposing your own assumptions onto them. How do you do that as journalists? Like how do you engage people to describe themselves or how would you teach a young journalist that, that skill? Well, you know, I think again, it's time. Um, and one of the oh, great wow. shames of journalism right now is that people are being pressed to deliver so much material in such a short amount of time. I have a former student who I totally adore, who has done investigative reporting on everything from ICE to the Proud Boys. And she quit a job because they said that she would get to write one reported story a day. And instead they asked her to do three clip jobs a day, just reading other people's reports and summarizing them because they wanted that churn on the website. And you know, for example, when I interviewed a married couple who were Trump voting evangelical Christians, I just spent, you know, I went to their church. I paid attention to the cultural signifiers at the church. Like, so for example, it was a mega church that had yeah. definitely yeah. some black people. It wasn't totally segregated, had this very like down home vibe was in a building that looked kind of like a college campus. But at one point, the minister said, I'll never be in a car alone with a woman except my wife. And so I was like, oh, okay. So this is like the kinder, gentler, you know, more casual, but there's still very defined gender roles here. And that let me know, you know, I just think that, that in addition to having people describe themselves, being in their environment tells you so much more. And I do miss that, not just because... Yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, it's really hard to just be like, let me shadow you for a day. Because first of all, a lot of times you'll just be following That's someone from point. the kitchen to the bedroom and then to the TV room and then back to the kitchen, you know. Um, but also, you know, it's it's just it, it, just for safety reasons, you can't do the same kinds of things and you can't really go easily to 
places where you can see people interacting with their peers, like a church, like a school, Mm -hmm. like a Mm -hmm. community center, like a Republican Party meeting, you know, and I've been to all these different things, Um, like, you know, an, an activist, a black activist meeting, and just to observe the patterns of how people interact with each other. So I miss that. I do miss that. One of the things that I hear you saying in that is that what people might say about themselves is often very different than what they do when they don't necessarily remember anyone's looking. And that feels very related to what we were talking about with the polling information discrepancies before. I sort of had the same impression as Laura in the way that you know, maybe it doesn't explain the polling thing, but it explains maybe like gaps in reporting. I remember sort of after 2016, there being a lot of reporting on Trump supporters done by white journalists that sort of came away with a kind of, oh, they're actually not that different. And I often sort of thought, well, then you haven't, you know, that's a nice sentiment, but it's actually not good analysis. Oh, absolutely. Any one of us is going to be kind of unusual if you follow us around long enough. And that just kind of, you know, like, I guess the stereotypical, like, guy in diner reporting, where it's like, well, this is what he told me. Here it is, right? And what you're describing is totally different. It's much more, as Laura was saying, letting the rhythms of someone's life maybe contradict how they present to themselves or, or nuance how they present themselves. And I'm wondering whether that kind of narcissism that can sort of get activated in some reporters, I would think, in dealing with a group that is both very recognizable and then quite different from most reporters. And then you add to that the pandemic, which just takes away our ability to just spend time together and really get to these revealing moments of like, oh, okay, there's there's way more going on here. Now, there's no reason for a polling error, but it's definitely a reason for um. a a quicker and hotter take in some way. You can't quite get kind of exposure that might get you to that point of like, oh, there's more going on here. I shouldn't file. I will spend another another day following this person from their kitchen to their bedroom. Yeah, I mean, to sort of combine what you and Laura are both saying, Laura, I thought of this very recent, it was a couple days before the election, article by 538, which is where I worked when I did this work on voters last cycle. And it said, no evidence of shy Trump voters in polling. And that's used as a code just to basically say that our numbers are good. We're not missing Trump voters. It's like, "Mm, not so much. So I think then to tie it to, you know, the broader point, I do think that Polling is not dead, but it is beaten up and lying in the gutter covered in blood right now. You know, <laughs> polling, polling needs to go to the hospital. And I think that the reality is that a lot of people are basing even their approach to reporting on polls. And before they even leave the office, it's like, oh, well, the polls said most of them are racist or the polls said most of them are poor or the polls said you know, whatever the polls said. And it's pretty clear right now that a lot of people just don't respond at all to polling. They deliberately make themselves absent or obfuscate in order to screw up the polling system. And people talk about this, like people brag on Reddit, I'll mess with a pollster any day. I mean, you know, the thing is, first of all, it's just really hard to get for people who are tied to landline polling, it's hard to get enough responses. And The Daily did a really good episode with Nate Cohn on this. But then getting back to, you know, the diner approach versus the immersion approach, which is more how I treat it, even the diner approach can work if you really are using the diner as a way to understand 
the community. I remember once we were doing a story and I was working for ABC at the time. So it was a TV story. I was dressed up. My producer, who was a black man, was dressed up. And we go into a Waffle House for coffee and breakfast. And like literally both of us are wearing suits and we look like the biggest rubes in the world. We're like sitting in Waffle House (laughs) in like, like we loved the food at Waffle House, but people there had a real class-based hostility towards us, which Mm. is not going to be true at every Waffle House. But like there were waves of energy, like, who are you assholes and why are you here, (laughs) you know, (laughs) coming at us? And that also tells you a lot. It tells Mm -hmm. you, you know, okay, this is a place where there's class-based resentment. Where does that come from? And what I would do, that was not the story we were there to tell. So I didn't dig into it, but I would start saying, You know, what were the unemployment numbers for the past 10 years or 20 years? What industries used to exist here that don't? What tensions are happening in the community? So if you're looking at tensions, even a diner visit can end up being something that is really useful, but it has to also be treated like, I feel like I use some of the tools of sociology, anthropology, statistical analyses. I also think that I have a real problem with what I call the data of the now now, which Mm -hmm. is like, what do people think right this second? Well, how does what they think this second compare to what they thought four years ago or 20 years ago? And are you doing any longitudinal tracking of sentiment? And sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's not good measures for data, but there's almost always some form of narrative that you can use to understand how people's views are changing and why. And at this point, I honestly think that narrative is way more important to understanding where we are as a country than the data of the now now. What do you think are the narratives that are getting lost or that aren't examined as strongly as they should be, right? Not necessarily in the now now, but in in our historical moment speaking broadly. Yeah, um racial resentment. And that seems obvious, but it's not because very often people talk about race or racism. Racial resentment is a specific type of sentiment that's highly mobilizing. Mm -hmm. It's the belief that someone else because of their race has things that they shouldn't have, or that you should have or that no one should have. And Racial resentment is really easy to weaponize in America. And people have completely underestimated it with Donald Trump, for example, for ages. You know, working at 538, there was a lot of calls like, don't do a hot take, you know, but and and I didn't do this, you know, publicly on the website. But during um, the time it was in September of 2016, Donald Trump had gone to visit the president of Mexico, and then he held a rally. And A lot of people were like, oh, this is going to be his conciliatory rally to Mexicans where he sort of apologizes. And and then, you know, he went all in on what I call the Mexican rapist playbook. And I just said in an internal, you know, Slack channel, I was like, oh, his poll numbers are going to go up the next day. And sure enough, they did. I think most people would have been like, oh, but that's just too much racism. Before it was just enough racism, but now it's too much racism. It's like... (laughs) No, it's racial resentment being weaponized. It's this weaponization of you don't deserve this. You don't deserve to be in my country. And unfortunately, you know, human beings, we are just really prone to resentment, being motivated by resentment of all types. And to really, for example, make distinctions between racism, which is used in any number of ways, 
some of them better than others or more accurate than others. Mm -hmm. And racial resentment, which you can actually track more precisely, not precisely, but more precisely, just, you know, tracking the right things, understanding the right things, and then also understanding that you're not always going to have, you know, metrics that you can compare to each other. And so if you don't, Mm -hmm. what's your resource, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of times Mm -hmm. it is narrative. I love the way you point to this question of resentment versus, you know, sort of a, a racist structure. Just also the way you described that Slack channel at 538, which makes a lot of sense of, I think, their coverage of some of these issues. And I was thinking about what you said earlier about the shy Trump voter. In some way, even that construction, right? The shy Trump voter thesis is always people might lie to pollsters because they're embarrassed. And that's already an imposition of values. It's saying, if I felt that way, obviously, I wouldn't want to admit it. The idea that maybe they just don't pick up the phone or you don't know them or you can't reach them. It's not quite the same thing as shyness, but the very fact that it was framed as the shy Trump voter sort of said like, oh, no one who's truly clubbable could possibly wish to express this kind of feeling. And it's like, well, but that's maybe not the point here, right? Like, I think that's, that's, that's really, really interesting. And so that's where the longitudinal question becomes interesting and that no one ever drops out of American life. Everyone goes somewhere and where, where have they gone? But how do you do that as in reporting? Do you just do you follow up with people that you interviewed five, ten years ago and just sort of try out where they're right now? You know, I'm thinking about doing that after this 2020 election. I just worry that some of the people who I found the most interesting won't talk to me, mm. you know, because sometimes you publish an article and even when it's completely truthful and tells the story the way that you want it to you end up offending people because reporters are not your friend. Um, In case any of you are interviewed by a reporter, a good reporter is not out to get you, but a good reporter is also not your friend. A reporter is not your publicist. They're not there to make you look good. They're there to be honest. So, you know, in the piece I did on the white evangelical couple, you know, I talked about gender and I talked about patriarchy, and I'm sure that was not something they loved. Yeah. But we did communicate immediately after the election, but I don't know that I, I may reach out to them, but I certainly have done repeat interviews with people over time. But I often look mm-hmm. more historically mm-hmm. at who are the people who are going through similar circumstances. This is not a precise analogy, but I think there is something to it. If you looked at white Southerners at the tail end of the civil rights era who realized that their way of life was no longer viable in the way that it used to be, that they couldn't have an endless number of black servants and the black chauffeur. And the, and this is, you know, upper middle class white people, but right. upper middle class white people in the South used to be able to live like rich people because of the suppression of, you know, equitable mm-hmm. labor, basically, in terms of payment to blacks. You, you used to be able to get a lot of blacks for not a lot of green. And, um, and so if I think that today, some of the racial resentment is this displaced anger, that things aren't like they used to be. And somebody's got to be blamed. So why not, you know, the immigrants and the blacks, but what's interesting this time is that we have really seen much more of a class-based split in 2020 even than 2016. The most typical Trump voter in 2016 was non-college educated, 
nearing retirement age and actually made a really good living in kind of off in the trades or other things like that. Now we're seeing more working class people of various races. So for example, the percentage of black women who voted for Trump last time around was 4% plus or minus, Mm -hmm. and it's doubled, which is still less than 10%, but it's a significant jump. And I don't have the comparable number for black men on the tip of my tongue, but it's higher. Latinos grew in support for the president. And I think it's there is this enchantment mm-hmm. with the idea that he represents some kind of a liberation from one's class struggle. And that should be heavily noted by both the Republicans and the Democrats. Like, what's going on here? Why are working class people of color voting for Donald Trump? That is a that's an inquiry that I have some ideas about, but definitely not the answer to, but it's super interesting. You know, you're reminding me of yet another fantastic Twitter thread from Michael Harriet that I saw yesterday in which he says, a lot of the anger about non-white people voting for a white nationalist is because some people don't understand one inarguable historical truth. That's exactly how you become white. <laughs> and then he goes on yes, to thread exactly. the it's history so true. of the Irish in America, the history of Italians yep. in America, going through to the history of Hispanic and Latinos in America. And it's an extremely salient historical point that one of the most reliable methods of assimilating into a white dominant class that relies on the existence of a subservient class is to ally yourself with white nationalism. And I think that's very related to everything you were just saying for I. Yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, very much like bell hooks said, patriarchy has no gender. And I would say that white supremacy Right. Has no fixed racial alliance. It is an ideology where the vast majority of the people who believe this ideology are white, but not everyone. And just like not every Mm -hmm. white person believes in white supremacy. I mean, and it's Mm -hmm. actually, you know, I think we should definitely be shocked at how many white Americans are willing to at least tolerate, if not embrace, white supremacy. But we should also realize that there are people who view it as their sword and shield, who are not white. I mean, I know a Republican political strategist who's like, Trump is great business for me, you know, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if he even likes the president, but he's looking at it as a business person. And being a black person who has been aligned with the president has been a real good meal ticket for mm-hmm. him. And he was willing to say it to me. So mm. friend of the podcast, Anthony Ocampo, who's a sociologist, did a fantastic piece for Color Lines last week about the Filipinos who support Trump and how Trump has seen a yeah. notable bump in, in support from the Filipino American community, again, along those lines. Yeah. For I, I'm aware that we need to let you go to the rest of election day. I wish we could keep you around, pour some wine and like go in on the results for a while longer. But thank you so much for making time for us today of all days. Oh, yeah. Well, this has been great. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you both. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. 
The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion.